Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. I'm Pierre Oshard. We're starting off today's episode with a recording of me at BNY Mellon. It was for their live podcast called Fintech Fridays. I hope you enjoy the conversation I had there and uh, look forward to the second part of the episode, which is about 45 minutes in, uh, which is the actual episode for today. So lots of content. Enjoy. Streaming live from the Bank of New York Mellon headquarters, this is Fintech Friday on Tour with your host, Mike Frietta. All right, all right, everybody, welcome. Uh, this is Fintech Friday, typically out of the Jersey Center Innovation Center, but we've graduated here to headquarters. Uh, for those of you in the audience who's here the, for their, their first time, Okay, how many uh, long-term fans? Who's been to a couple episodes before? Okay, oh, I see the old T-shirts, yep. Okay, there you go. So FinTech Friday, we talk about the latest buzzwords that's happening in technology, whether that's artificial intelligence, Bitcoin, blockchain, machine learning, big data, and try to talk about that to to educate everyone here at the firm uh, of what's happening in the latest. Uh, So just a couple housekeeping items. We do have a Symphony channel. If you're on Symphony, you can search for FinTech Friday. I'll be monitoring that stream throughout. Um, So if the air conditioning is too cold or you have any questions uh, for our guests, uh, you can use that channel to to communicate with us. And also we have a a MySource social group where you can see our Flipboard where we share the latest articles and we uh, we take requests for guests and we tell you what episodes are coming up. This week in the news... Uh, NASDAQ, the second largest exchange in the world, announced that it acquired Cinnabar for $190 million. Cinnabar is a Swedish financial technology group providing services for brokers, exchanges, and clearinghouses. Uh, they've got customers such as Asia Pacific Exchange, Dubai Gold, Commodities Exchange. Cinnabar is also known for its crypto affiliation as, uh, as the fintech partnered with BitGo earlier this year to provide high-performance trading solution for institutional investors. Speaking of BitGo, they just received approval in the U.S. to act as a qualified custodian for digital assets. The BitGo Trust has been approved by the South Dakota Division of Banking on Tuesday, Thursday, meaning it can now offer institutional clients a regulated storage solution for digital assets. This may be the first time the regulation, a regulated custodian was designed and built from scratch specifically for crypto assets. Uh, Stripe. Typically, over to payments, yeah, Stripe, typically known for online and digital payments, is now tinkering with the brick-and-mortar world. They announced that they're going to be unveiling a new product called Stripe Terminal. So expect to see that in your local coffee shops. Uh, Ribbit Capital, the financial company that's investments include Coinbase, Robinhood, Root Insurance, uh, just announced that they're raising another $420 million to its latest fund, according to the SEC. Keep an eye out on them. And speaking of Coinbase, uh, they announced that they are expanding their New York presence. So right now, I think there's 20 or so in their office, and they, are now, they have plans to expand to about 150. So they've been already grabbing folks away from the New York Stock Exchange, Barclays, and Citigroup. So keep an eye on, on Coinbase here in New York. Uh, J.P. Morgan, then, that's a few weeks ago, but uh, the J.P. Morgan has hired... Uh, Apoor of Sixana from Google's head of product management for cloud-based artificial intelligence. Uh, and Sixana will lead the artificial intelligence and machine learning services uh, and also be head of asset and wealth management, artificial intelligence technology. So interesting news from over our friends over at J.P. Morgan. 
And last Friday, the Boston at the Boston FinTech Conference, our uh, CEO of Fidelity, Abigail Johnson, Johnson announced we've got uh, when asked about what kind of crypto products they have coming out. Uh, we've got a few things underway, a few things that are partially done, but also the kind of uh, also we're on the shelf. We've got a few on the shelf, but it's not quite the right time. We hope to have some things announced by the end of the year. A little cryptic about crypto, but uh, something coming out of Fidelity as well. And finally, uh, rumor has it Morgan Stanley plans to offer Bitcoin swap trading for clients. Uh, they plan to offer trading in complex derivatives. Investors will be able to go long or short using the so-called price return swaps, and Morgan Stanley will charge a spread for each transaction. That's the news this week. And now we're going to go to the Eli 5 section, explain like I'm five, uh, with Courtney McGill. Courtney. Thanks, Mike. So just like U.S. dollars or Japanese yen or Indian rupees, Bitcoin is a currency. But unlike these other currencies, it doesn't come in the form of paper money or metal coins. It exists solely in the virtual world, unless you cash out and convert your Bitcoins to another currency, just like how you would do with your U.S. dollars if you're traveling to a country that doesn't accept them. You need to change your currency into their currency. The U.S. Mint prints U.S. dollars. But one of the main features of Bitcoin is that it's a decentralized currency, meaning that there's no central governing body that creates and controls the currency. So how do they come into existence? Well, Bitcoins are created using mining. And just like how mining for gold or coal requires a lot of effort and machinery, mining Bitcoins requires a lot of computation. And just like mining for gold, you're not necessarily guaranteed to find anything when you mine but people are still incentivized to volunteer their computational power in the hopes of getting just a piece of a Bitcoin. Once Bitcoins are created, they can be traded, just like stocks on a stock market or even wiring cash between two accounts. But if I wanted to wire money from my account to Mike's account, I have to contact my bank and they'll debit my account. And then they'll contact Mike's bank and credit his account. And then Mike finally has the money. So there's a lot of bank middleman play involved. Bitcoin avoids all of this with its use of keys. Mike has a public key, which you can think of as kind of like an address where I can send Bitcoins to him. Mike also has a private key, which only he knows. You can think of it as like a super secret password. I'll send Bitcoins to Mike's to his address, his public key, and he can accept them using his private key. Then Mike instantly has them. Because there's no bank central governing body to validate that that transaction actually took place, Bitcoin relies on consensus of the masses. If I handed Mike a $10 bill before this show when we were setting up and no one was around, after the show, he could claim that I never gave him that money. And there's not much I could do to dispute that claim. But if I gave him $10 during this show when all of you were watching and everyone on the live stream was tuned in, Hopefully, you would all back me up that I gave him that money. Bitcoin uses the same idea. Everyone involved in the network keeps track, using a distributed ledger, of all of the transactions that ever happened. So no individual can really claim that a certain transaction never took place because they would be overruled by the rest of the network. That historical ledger that everyone keeps track of is called a blockchain. And it's the underlying technology for Bitcoin. But it gets pretty complicated, so we'll leave the details of that for another FinTech Friday episode. Woo. 
All right. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, and next, uh, our guest is the co-founder of the Noted Podcast, the Bitcoin Advisory, and the Nakamoto Institute, uh, Pierre Richard, everybody. Pierre. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Up. Have a seat. Okay, Pierre. First question. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, the a great economist or the greatest economist? <laughs> No, but really, what are your thoughts on our current situation in our economic world that we're living in? Yeah, uh, so I think that um, we have to start with, like, what what is money? Uh, and money is just a social consensus, right? We just all agree that something, uh, some particular good is going to be our most liquid medium of exchange. How we come to that agreement uh, is extremely complicated and so some argue that it's just a historical accident that we ended up with gold and then that the that the world eventually moved off of gold and then now we're basically on a U.S. dollar standard. Um, but regardless of how we got here, uh, we kind of see that there's perhaps issues with our current system uh, that really came to the fore with the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and... We're right now in a pretty stable situation. Uh, you know, the central bank's response to the financial crisis uh, stabilized the financial system, and we're now in you know year eight, nine of a long bull market in equities. Um, but I still think that there are unresolved problems, and I think that the world uh, continues to uh, be more leveraged than it's ever been. Uh, and ultimately, I, I don't think it's sustainable. Uh, but it's so let's tie this into uh, Bitcoin. Uh, the way I, I see Bitcoin is as an entire alternative to the current monetary system. Um, and I also, you know, in the context of being at BNY Mellon, I think that it's important to delineate uh, the or, or draw a difference between the financial system and the monetary system. Uh, historically, they've always been very tightly coupled because. Uh, c- commercial banks create uh, money, uh, and so the through their lending activities, uh, and so uh, this this aspect of fractional reserve banking has made it so that the monetary system and the financial system are tightly coupled. Um, but that's not an inevitability. You you can have those two functions be decoupled, and that's what Bitcoin represents to me is uh, trying to tease apart the the monetary system have a monetary system where there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins. So there's uh, a strong uh, scarcity to the unit. Um, And then on top of that, you can build a financial system, which ultimately, because no units of the money can be created in case of a crisis, I think that the financial system built on top of Bitcoin would be much more prudent uh, and ultimately not have as many uh, macroeconomic issues as we have uh, today. But Could you give some examples yeah. of where money was just printed in those, those crisis situations? World War One, or something, for example? Or- yeah, I mean, well, more recently we have QE, right? Um, but uh, for, for, for every major conflict that uh, countries have been involved in, going back centuries, uh, they... Back in the 1800s or the, uh, the 1900s, uh, the 
the UK would go off of the gold standard so that they could have a more relaxed monetary policy that would allow them to pay for, you know, going to war with Napoleon or whatever it was. Um, and so there's, there's a long history of uh, governments establishing a monetary standard uh, and then uh, breaking it or, you know, breaking people's expectations uh, when it is convenient for them to do so. Uh, and one of the arguments for Bitcoin is that by removing the ability for governments to do this, uh, that hopefully it results in fewer conflicts and uh, we can focus on peaceful trade rather than world wars. Sure. And do you really think that it's more of a, a country's moving towards, and we can talk about right now what's happening with hyperinflation with, with Turkey or Argentina or Venezuela, or is it an individual self-sovereignty? I mean, for example, I like the fact that I can cross international borders and I don't have to declare anything. The Bitcoin's in my head. I am no longer subject to my country's, uh, the, the, the currency that I was issued at birth. I'm no longer subject to that. Is it, you think it's more of a country move or an individual move? It's definitely the latter. Yeah. Uh, and this was, this was Jamie Dimon's main criticism of Bitcoin, which is that he was saying that, Look, Bitcoin is useful in countries like North Korea or Cuba, uh, where you do have a repressive regime that is abusing its monetary authority. But here in the United States, we don't have that problem. So if someone in the United States, uh, you know, speculating on Bitcoins uh, is is pointless uh, because ultimately they don't have any use for it here in the U.S. You, you can trust the dollar to be a stable store of value. Um, and so I think that... He, his his point is is well taken, but we have to look at the reflexivity of it, which is that if you here in the U.S. expect people abroad to have issues with their monetary authorities uh, and to adopt Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, then you can speculate on the value going up. Um, and then secondly, I don't think that the U.S. is immune from uh, what, what's going on in other countries, whether it's Turkey or um, Venezuela, because... Uh, we have issues of, um, uh, well, so as civil asset forfeiture here in the United States, for example. So the local police department can seize your cash uh, and hold it without any due process. This happens all the time. It gets reported about in the New York Times. It unfairly affects minorities. Uh, and I, I think it's a, it's a huge injustice that is being committed domestically in the United States. So that's where I think that Jamie Dimon might be a little off the mark in that uh, we're not immune from having uh, authorities that overstep, uh, you know, what we would consider to be uh, morality or due process. Um, and then second of all, I, I don't think that the Federal Reserve has a spotless track record. Uh, we saw in the late 70s there was a run on the dollar. Uh, gold was going up massively. Paul Volcker had to step in and dramatically raise interest rates above 20 percent uh, to reestablish the credibility of U.S. monetary policy. So it's, it's not like uh, the U.S. has always had, you know, a, a good monetary policy. Uh, there's no reason why we couldn't see inflation come back um, just because we have had the opposite problem as of late, which is too low inflation, uh, I don't think means that that's always going to be the case. Um, you know, past performance is not future performance. Right. And so how do you as an individual prepare for what you see as the future coming here? What are some, some chips to... Yeah. To... Well, so I, I actually see Bitcoin as kind of being um, a subset 
of the general issue with cybersecurity uh, that's going on, which is that uh, p- people's identities are constantly getting stolen, um, and all of these systems are vulnerable to fraud and hacking and all of that. Um, and so generally, like, it, there's a huge gap between computer users uh, and iPhone users or whatever, um, and their expectations of security and privacy and where security and privacy actually is. Uh, and that gap needs to be fixed for Bitcoin specifically because, as uh, we were talking about earlier with the private keys, like, that needs to be kept secret uh, and needs to be kept private. So uh, if it's the case that uh, Apple is forced to put a backdoor in their iPhone uh, that the FBI can access and we're in a world where people use Bitcoin on their iPhones, then the FBI could seize your funds just as easily as they can seize a, a bag of cash. So I see all of these issues as being interrelated. And the way we prepare uh, starts with cybersecurity, whether it's at a corporate level or an individual level of understanding uh, you know, ha- how to have good uh, uh, password hygiene, how to use a password manager, uh, what does encryption mean, uh, what does signing a message mean. Um, and we're, we're just we've been living in a world where we're kind of free from the consequences uh, or a lot of the consequences where basically you can just have Visa reverse your transaction uh, to make you whole if your identity does get stolen. But um, with with Bitcoin, there's no recourse there. And so I think that the first step is is cybersecurity. Sure. So what do you see switching over to to us as a, as a, a financial institution? Uh, we, had, so we had a lot of questions from the audience uh, prior to the show, something particularly about um, should we be looking at, at cold storage? Where do you see institutions like us interacting? And, and let me just give a little quick background, too. I mean, I, so I, I, was, I spent a decade in, in tech media, and we went through this adjustment the last uh, 10 years of the iPad coming on, and streaming content was the – we had to be frenemies with Twitter, Facebook, Netflix, et cetera. And it's this weird relationship right now in, in media. And then you just talk about Bitcoin, and that's essentially, instead of streaming content, you're now able to stream value. How do you see that merge between, I guess, Wall Street and Bitcoin? Yeah, uh, I think that there's uh, there, both, both sides. So the, uh, the two sides that I see are kind of traditional finance, BNY Mellon on one side, and then these startups out of San Francisco, you know, Coinbase on the other. And the, the argument... So right now, the, the question is, like, who would be best as, as a custodian of digital assets? Um, is it Coinbase that has years of experience with custodying digital assets? Uh, they started in 2000, late 2012, 2013. Um, and so there you can say, well, they have a pretty good track record. Now, granted, like, we can question whether everything has been disclosed, uh, you, know, you know, how good is their track record, but... So far, so good, right? They, they custody billions of dollars worth of digital assets. Um, so that's the argument they have going for them because custodying a digital asset is, you know, ha- having ownership of a private key is so different, um, both from kind of the, the risk management perspective and the technology perspective, uh, that uh, it really does take specialized knowledge and c- capabilities that, for example, BNY Mellon might not have yet, um, the counter-argument is that that's looking at uh, things rather narrowly of just the technology. Uh, there's all of the internal controls around uh, custodying an asset, um, and even simple things 
that banks have learned from, for example, having to deal with wire transfer fraud, you know, how, how to do a callback, how to have a person-to-person relationship, um, and you know, having someone you can get on the phone uh, is a big deal. Uh, I think a lot of these startups have seen the customer service as, as secondary, which just doesn't work for financial institutions. Uh, you have to have uh, people that and a, a culture that you can trust ultimately mm-hmm. um, because no matter how many technological safeguards there are, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's people. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where I think that BNY Mellon's decades, probably a century, century. plus. Yeah, we'll say 1784 yeah. is our first, Okay, yeah. centuries of experience in the domain uh, means that they have a good shot at it as well. So I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion that, like, the startups are going to run the scoreboard on custodying assets. Um, And it's just, I I think that uh, the incumbent financial players have to move quickly. Um, And we've seen things develop rather quickly. Now, granted, we're in a bear market now, so this is where people relax and, you know, they they, uh, become apathetic towards Bitcoin and then they get caught off guard when they're like, oh, it's up a thousand percent. What happened? (laughs) So, so you're well connected in the New York City area. Uh, how do you see us, or at least what you hear, compared to to our friends over at J.P. Morgan, Goldman, and, and trading firms, I guess, as well? Yeah, so I think that there's uh, the, the first disconnect that happened between uh, Bitcoin and, and financial institutions was this idea that, oh, you know what? It's actually Bitcoin's underlying blockchain technology that is interesting mm. to us uh, from a kind of a back office, um, you know, settlement perspective. Uh, and I think that that largely turned out to either be overhyped or entirely erroneous uh, because once w- once they started doing pilot programs, and I'm not speaking specifically about BNY Mellon, but sure. financial institutions in general, they found that these pilot programs didn't really deliver on the marketed cost savings or efficiency gains uh, from using blockchain technology. And um, I, I think it was mostly like kind of a, a buzzword rather than something substantive there because ultimately what the blockchain technology uh, serves is to create a decentralized system. And uh, specifically a decentralized system that like is, is functional on a global, system, global basis that's pseudonymous uh, and that's kind of open access. And that goes against what uh, financial institutions uh, value when they're looking at uh, settlement systems. Um, so that was the first, you know, I th- that, was, that was getting hyped up in 2014, 2015. Uh, and the, the second now is between uh, trading, finan- or trading and creating financial products that are cash settled and you're kind of staying away from the underlying now it's it's weird to call this physical bitcoins but that's what they're called you know the, the spot market of uh actual bitcoins uh versus you know paper bitcoins of a future that is cash settled um so we i think we'll see financial institutions so like ice uh promoted or has is backing a company called backed and they're promising uh products that are are backed by physical bitcoins um, and then uh, we've seen like CME and CBOE come out with uh, cash settled products. And I think that what we'll see is the, the, the financial institutions that really embrace Bitcoin 
and that don't shy away from getting involved in the physical market mm. uh, will do better than the ones that are very standoffish and either just you know a- accommodating client order flow for cash products or for um, uh, USD settled products. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me switch to regulation a bit. Well, let, a quick on your background. So you've got an engineering background in Bitcoin. Can you just touch briefly on your your background and yeah, yeah. how you got involved in Bitcoin as well? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I actually it's, I studied accounting in college. I got my master's in accounting at UT Austin. I worked at Deloitte. Uh, I quickly realized that software development was what I wanted to do um, rather than accounting. I, I realized how much there is that can be automated with uh, so, some good Python code. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I went down that route, uh, became a software engineer, you know, worked at startups, worked at a Bitcoin startup, uh, and now I'm independent. I work on open source uh, Bitcoin software and uh, you know, speak with audiences such as this one today sure. uh, about Bitcoin. Okay, so where do you see, so in the regulation, you, know, you think about Dodd-Frank, and it's kind of regulation for a time that's past, if you will, it's almost, and how do we t- regulate a little better for the future? And I think it's on the technologist uh, to, to think about this, about what's, what we're creating that's going to, we don't know what's going to screw up the financial systems in the future. What should we, how should we be looking at it now for 10, 20 years down the line? Right. So this is where, uh, you know, earlier we we're talking about Bitcoin being decentralized. So there's not uh, yeah, a specific... Sure. Um, Entity that the that Congress could write a bill for to have them do X, Y, and Z, and so I think that's where uh, it's important for people to um, learn about how does Bitcoin's governance process work, given that it is decentralized. Mm. So how is it that changes are made to Bitcoin? Uh, because you know Bitcoin is is an evolving project. Um, people talk about immutability. But really what they're talking about is kind of immutability of, of the past. Uh, and going forward, we're going to continue innovating on Bitcoin. Uh, so I think that it's important for regulators to distinguish between regulating Bitcoin, the network itself, which can only occur through Bitcoin's governance process. Uh, it, can't, it can't occur through a, uh, a, the government's governance process, which is... It's very controversial to say, but I think that's the reality of the situation. Sure, but if you think about my analogy about back to media, right, yeah. and what, what, what Facebook has brought on with kind of doing experiments on humans without even realizing yeah. from a large scale, these type of problems I think we're going to see with, with finance and we can't really foresee them yet. So I guess it, it's, it's more of an ethical for, foresight that we need to have in place. Absolutely. Uh, and then the, the other aspect of it is looking at what governments can regulate. Right. So what governments can regulate is uh, projects that purport to be decentralized but are, in fact, centralized. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I see a lot of these. I'm not going to name names, but they ultimately can be subjected to securities laws, anti-money laundering, all, all of these uh, laws. Uh, and then also the, um, the on and off ramps between Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar. So uh, exchanges receive a lot of scrutiny. Uh, New York uh, Attorney General just uh, released a report on different exchanges, and uh, they are clearly dissatisfied by uh, the state of affairs at, at these exchanges. And uh, frankly, like I, I share their concerns. Uh, as 
as a consumer of these exchanges, um, I, I don't want there to be manipulation going on there. Uh, and I certainly want them to have uh, the, um, the, the, the soundness requirements that we expect from financial institutions that are regulated like BNY Mellon. That's fair. And as a, let's see, as an individual, I kind of went down the rabbit hole starting in 2013, 2014, Bitcoin, and then had a thousand coins, and then back to Bitcoin, and hey, blockchain's cool, and ICOs, and then kind of went back just to Bitcoin, right? Yeah. So, so as an individual, getting uh, like, where should we should we care about ICOs? Uh, you kind of you touched on blockchain, and I, I think everyone should kind of understand what it means and how it works but not spend too much time on it. Um, ICOs, for example, and, and all the ish coins, if you will. Yeah, so I think that that's where uh, the decentralization aspect is important. Um, if, if an ICO is issuing a token... Initial coin offering. Right, initial coin offering. So uh, they, I, I think that what they've been doing is playing off of the ambiguity as to what it is that they're selling. So... Uh, out of one math, they'll say that they are selling a token that uh, just represents nothing, right? That it is a self-contained token, and uh, eventually it might be used by some kind of uh, decentralized system, whether it's like a, a betting market or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, they do try to frame it as like you're buying equity in, right. in some kind of uh, common enterprise. Uh, and they try to have it both ways. Uh, but ultimately, I think that what they're doing is that they are attracting retail investors who see Bitcoin's historical performance and get it in their minds that, oh, well, if I invest in the next Bitcoin, then I will make extraordinary returns as well. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of a dangerous game to play. If, if, if we abstract away from like, well, what are the fundamentals that drove Bitcoin to accruing this value? Right. And are there, other, I mean, I guess... There's a big segmentation there. What are cryptocurrencies? I mean, the only ones are, you could argue, it's Bitcoin, Monero, and Zcash. Are, are they true cryptocurrencies? <laughs> so uh, I, th- I think that, that, that gets into a lot of subjective opinion. Okay. Um, what we do know is that the SEC has come out and said that Bitcoin is not a security. Sure. Um, and then we had a commissioner say that Ethereum is not a security. Now, that's not like the SEC's official position yet, perhaps, uh, we'll see how that evolves. Um, so I do try to limit my commenting on Bitcoin itself uh, because that's the one that uh, we know is not a security and I can't get in trouble for uh, talking about. But um, the, these other ones, you know, what, you know the, they, the, there are other ones that share so many properties of Bitcoin that we can say, you know, odds are that they're, they're not a security either. Um, but... What what the limits test for whether uh, one of these altcoins is centralized or not is that they get attacked, um, and so that's where we see are they resilient and do they uh, withstand an attack. So Bitcoin has been repeatedly attacked over its history, uh, and it has achieved flawless victories every time. So we're fairly confident that it is decentralized and very robust to attacks. Uh, these other ones, I think, they haven't had the same uh, level of scrutiny. That's fair. That's fair. Right. It's the Bitcoin is dead, right? As yeah. is the weekly the headline, right? <laughs> uh, so I'll take one from from uh, our streaming audience here. Uh, it seems like a bad idea. This is from Tim. Uh, it seems like a bad idea to bottleneck the world's transactions on a single network. Well, I can maybe answer this one. Maybe not. Maybe uh, Suhab. Uh, could you speak to this? 
Yeah, so uh, one of the, I'd call it like a religious debate uh, within Bitcoin is uh, Bitcoin's uh, scalability uh, and its scaling uh, both over the short, medium, and long term. Uh, So there is an artificial limit on how many transactions per second the Bitcoin network can process. Uh, And that limit is deliberately put there because it is essentially a way of preventing a denial of service attack um, where you could flood the network with so many transactions that the nodes that the Bitcoin network is composed of uh, cannot keep up and essentially drop out until you have, you know, one node uh, that is highly centralized, and we've just defeated the entire purpose of Bitcoin. So uh, clearly, we we can't have uh, arbitrarily high transactions per second, and the entire debate is about, okay, between where we are today, which is like seven transactions per second, and infinity, surely there's a point where we can say, like, uh, this, this this preserves Bitcoin's decentralization properties, and it allows Bitcoin to scale. Um, and so last year we saw a very acrimonious debate about doubling the limit to 14 transactions per second. Uh, I was firmly in the camp that that was entirely premature. Uh, and uh, the, the reason I think it's premature is because uh, over Bitcoin's history from 2009 to last year, there was uh, the expectation that you would be able to transact on the Bitcoin network uh, in a very low-cost manner. And I think that that expectation was due to the fact that Bitcoin had, has what's called a, a block reward. You know, we we're talking about mining, how Bitcoins get created. So this block reward was artificially subsidizing Bitcoin security, the hash rate. Uh, eventually, as that block reward gets phased out so that we only ever create 21 million Bitcoins, uh, we need to have transaction fees that compensate for that block reward. And so having... Uh, having the participants, the users of the system, realize the transaction fees going forward are going to go up uh, and break their expectation of always having low transaction fees uh, was, in my mind, very important. And we saw that happen in December. We saw median transaction fees go to like $30, um, which obviously was driven by the price mania. uh, But it certainly helped people realize that uh, Bitcoin's on-chain scaling was not going to happen the way they might have thought in 2010. Uh, now, we're, what we're seeing now is that having this artificial scarcity of transactions per second uh, means that people end up using it more efficiently. Uh, and so we're seeing efficiency gains from what's called SegWit, which is a new technology for Bitcoin. Uh, and we saw efficiency gains from uh batching and people being more careful about how they use the uh, block space, which is a commons, right? And so it has a tragedy of the commons where you can externalize the cost of transacting on the rest of the network uh, by sending transactions. So anyway, uh, lastly, we have layer two solutions. So uh, the most popular one is Lightning Network. Uh, That got deployed to uh, Bitcoin's mainnet uh, with real money uh, earlier this year. And we're seeing it rapidly evolve and being iterated on. Uh, It's an open source project. And what it aims to do is maintain uh, Bitcoin's uh, properties of irreversibility uh, while also enabling having transactions be instant, uh, having them be of very low value, so potentially micropayments. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and then ultimately be settled on chain uh, when the participants are ready to, to cash out of the Lightning Network. So a layer on top of the Bitcoin Network. But you can yeah, and, and, and we yeah. see this in the traditional financial system. Like, uh, consumers don't use Fedwire to, to pay for their groceries, right? And so we have layers in the financial system where low-value, high-velocity transactions happen on the Visa payments network and then ultimately you know, get settled. You know, beyond the Visa payments layer, we have like ACH and then the wire transfer system. Uh, and so th- this is, uh, I think, a, a, a well-known way of scaling with layers. That makes sense. Uh, another one is the, your views on the over-concentration mining power susceptible, susceptible to the 51% attack. Yep. So this is, I think, uh, one of the biggest problems or challenges that Bitcoin is facing right now is um, the... Uh, the perception that mining is centralized, uh, because I actually think that it's, it's much more decentralized than people uh, view it as. Um, so Bitcoin's, uh, the, the mining industry, you can kind of if you break it out into the vertical. Uh, it's got the chip design of what's called ASICs, uh, application-specific integrated circuits. And so these ASICs are all about mining Bitcoin or and it's not really even Bitcoin specifically. It's, it's a specific hashing algorithm, SHA-256 squared, which is used by other altcoins as well. But anyway, um, so you have the design of those chips and then the manufacturing of those chips. Sure. That, that and, uh, the manufacturing of those chips is where things are most centralized. Uh, it, currently, TSMC is the, the largest one. Uh, and then you have Samsung that is getting into the game as well. Um, so I think that's kind of the bottleneck right now. But... What people see as being centralized, which I think is misleading, is, is the issue of mining pools, where basically uh, people who are mining, and they might have like 1% of the hash rate. If you have 1% of the hash rate, you want to you manage your cash flow risk by joining a mining pool. And the pool operator uh, is the one that is going to be divvying up the work with all the miners and then divvying up all the rewards. And it's kind of a, a way of, uh, yeah, as the name implies, pooling, pooling resources. Um, and so that, that on its surface looks like it's centralized because you have like a dozen of these pool operators and you're like, well, okay, if, if you know, a few of them get coerced. But the, the underlying hash rate would quickly disperse if one of them got compromised and was trying to force a change. The other aspect of it is that uh, the, the mining is only uh, about doing uh, what's called proof-of-work timestamping. And that's about making sure that the ordering of transactions uh, prevents a double spend. But the validity of the transactions and of the blocks is determined not by the miners, but by the peer-to-peer network of nodes. And so you have lots of uh, different individuals, companies that are running their own node, and that if a miner tried to put in an invalid transaction or create an invalid block, uh, the network would reject it, and thus I I don't see that being a a huge risk. Mm -hmm. The risk is that you have a miner who... uh, I think the biggest risk is the miner refuses to mine transactions, uh, and that can create kind of a denial of service attack. But uh, the incentive against that is, again, the transaction fees. They, sure. They're in it for the money. Got it. Uh, I'll go to David in the audience who's asked to question. I asked him to type it, but he's been vehemently typing. Uh, okay. Do we have a mic for, for David? If you use the Symphony channel, we, we hear everything you say. Okay, uh, so my uh, issue with like hoping for greater Bitcoin proliferation has been the concern of giving up that monetary policy. Like with the eurozone crisis, we saw that 
was exa- uh, exacerbated because countries like Greece or Ireland did not have control to devalue their currencies to like boost exports or something. And thus that crisis was spread throughout the entire Eurozone. So like, do you have any ideas on like how Bitcoin spread, how we could kind of minimize those types of issues that might result? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair question. And so there's, um, there's different visions of how Bitcoin adoption will happen, right? So uh, there is uh, the camp that like Bitcoin is going to be like digital gold. So like gold is today where uh, governments are not on the gold standard, uh, but gold provides a non-sovereign store of value that uh, people can, can use. And it ends up in traditional financial portfolios as like an ETF. And it's not really uh, part of the monetary system per se. Uh, it's just something that's operating in parallel. So I think that's, that's how Bitcoin currently is. Uh, it's, it's not really, uh, you know, no country is on, on Bitcoin. Um, but the, so then if we look a little more adoption, uh, there's people who see it as like it could be a reserve asset that is held in Forex reserves like the U.S. dollar is today or that the euro is today, where it's basically a hard money that a central bank can use to stabilize their own exchange rate um, when they're having Forex issues. Uh, and we, obviously, we haven't seen that happen yet, um, but I, I think it's you know within the next decade we'll see uh, central banks taking that uh, role more seriously. Um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, even more than that is a country being on the Bitcoin standard, right? Where basically they are pegging their currency against Bitcoin. And this would be like in like 50 years or something when the price is stabilized and whatnot. Uh, and they're using it to add credibility to their monetary policy. Um, that's that's plausible. I actually think it's it's actually, it's less plausible than the country just entirely going full Bitcoin and like there's no national currency that's being pegged or anything. They just use Bitcoin itself. Um, and there I, I agree that it presents a challenge for a government that gets over indebted in Bitcoin denominated debt uh, and then can't print more Bitcoins to, uh, you know, monetize that debt. Uh, and that's, that's not an unheard of problem. Uh, there have been countries that borrow in foreign currencies uh, you know, they'll, they'll issue dollar denominated debt and then they end up defaulting on it. And, you know, so, some hedge fund sues them in international court. Uh, it's not something that's unheard of. Um, so I think that the the ability to default on debt is always there. Uh, and I, I would argue that defaulting on your debt is more transparent and honest than uh, monetizing your debt and defaulting it indirectly uh, by inflating away the value of it. Um, but government officials may see it differently, and I'm sure they will, and they'll, they'll, there'll be a lot of tension about monetary sovereignty. Um, and I don't think it's new, though, because, for example, under the gold standard, uh, there was a lot of tension about gold versus sil- silver, bimetallism, you know, William Jennings Bryan. Like, if we look throughout U.S. history, there's always been controversy about monetary economics, um, and, you know, recently it was like the Tea Party and not at the Fed and that. Uh, but also we, in the U.S., we kind of have a, uh, a very um, biased perspective on the issue because we are the beneficiaries of the current U.S. dollar standard. 
Uh, and if you go, for example, in France, uh, you know, one of the French prime ministers called it the exorbitant privilege that the U.S. has, where essentially they can uh, print more money than they otherwise would be able to because there's so much demand around the world of using the dollar and using treasury bonds as, uh, as forex reserves. Um, and so the U.S. has benefited from being, you know, the, the, the premier uh, monetary, the most liquid monetary instrument globally. Uh, and China is trying to move away from that, uh, you know, whether it's the IMF, SDR, or trying to get the Chinese yuan used to, you know, trade oil futures or whatever it may be. Like, uh, there already is, uh, you know, currency wars, as it's been called. Uh, let me switch up a little bit, too. Something at BYMLN that we take as uh, one of our values is uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, I went to your dinner, and I tweeted out afterwards. It was like, hey, uh, 97 white male guys. Like, yeah. it was, and again, here we are on the stage. Uh, and someone, you know, a lot of people responded via Twitter, like, hey, how do we include more people in this as, as it grows? Any thoughts on, on that kind of diversity? Yeah, it's, it's really challenging. Uh, I think that... It speaks to a wider issue in the world of technology where there is that, that gap that currently exists. Um, and then uh, not just from the technology perspective, but from the monetary economics perspective, um, if I look at who works in finance departments uh, at schools and, and who's interested in, in these issues, uh, it is old white men. Um, and, yeah, I... I think that it's a huge it's a huge issue because it means that we have a lot less uh, different a lot a lot fewer backgrounds and experiences that can speak to, um, for example, if we're talking about like the fairness of the U.S. dollar, like it would be good to have internationalist perspectives on that and not just a U.S. centric perspective on it. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. I, I I agree with that, and uh, I, I hope that it, it changes. I I'm not. You know, I, I, I'm not smart enough to, to know how to fix it. Yeah, I, sure. I wish I was, but, yeah. I mean, I started with uh, following, like, Elizabeth Stark, who's working on the Lightning Network, and then she, which she's listed as, and then you see others. And so there's, there's a lot of uh, diversity out there. You kind of have to, to look for it at this point, but um, something, to, something to keep in mind as, as the community grows. Yeah. Um, I'm getting told to, to, to wrap it up a bit. Uh, as individuals, though, uh, what's the best way to educate yourselves? Uh, I, I've been putting sapiens in front of people for the last couple of years. Uh, the Bitcoin standard is now the, my most mm-hmm. bought and gifted book. Uh, I guess your podcast, Noted Podcast, you can find it on, on everything. Yeah. Uh, what are some other great sources for, for folks to get involved in? Yeah, I th- so there's a 24-7 conversation happening on Twitter about Bitcoin and this wider like crypto phenomenon. So I think that that's where, that's where the conversation is happening, at least publicly. And um, so if you're interested in keeping up with the latest or, you know, you just want to browse some tweets on your commute, um, go, there's a website, uh, cryptoinfluencers.io, that lists, like, the top 1,000, like, Twitter accounts. And you can just go down and, like, follow all of them. Sure. I think that, that, would, that would give you, like, a, a, a big uh, view on, on what's going on. But it, there's just so much information. It's a fire hose. Um, so there's a book called Mastering Bitcoin okay. by Andreas Antonopoulos. Um, and it, it does focus on the technicals of it, but it is very approachable for a non-programmer. So I, I, I wouldn't let um, 
And, it, you know, the, the parts that go over my head, like, you can skip them, uh, and uh, you can still get a lot out of the book, and, and then reread it a few dozen times, and then you can master Bitcoin. <laughs> I, I do enjoy that it was when the social media world came out, the developers didn't have social media to communicate on. So now this working out loud concept of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is fascinating that you can see it happening. It's the first time in human history that we can watch people work on what's coming up next in technology, and that kind of seems like the norm. I think Bitcoin is the first major technology to have that, so easy to follow along. Yeah, I, I actually created a Twitter bot that tweets out every time code is merged into the Bitcoin uh, code repository, so that lets people oh, wow. kind of have like transparency into what's going on because, uh, yeah, non-developers are not used to going on GitHub and seeing what's going on. Right. And then even among developers, it's kind of unprecedented that you can go on GitHub and see uh, what, what is going on in, like, the future of finance, right? Uh, normally, that's very proprietary and internal to, to financial institutions or the Federal Reserve. Right. Uh, and so I missed probably 50 questions or so. Uh, maybe I'll contact you afterwards, do a summary, and say, hey, if you want, we'll yeah. post it internally to our, our group here. Um, and where can they find you, Pierre? Where, where's the best way to follow you? Uh, definitely Twitter, at Pierre underscore Rochard. Um, and... Uh, yeah, BitcoinAdvisory.com is my website. What do you guys do? What do you guys do? Yeah, advisory, so. so it's uh, educating investors about both Bitcoin's underlying technology. Why is it that there can only be 21 million Bitcoins and all of this? Um, and then the different kind of investment theses around Bitcoin. There's so many different views, uh, both for and against investing in Bitcoin, or if you can even call it investing. You know, maybe it's just speculation, but. Uh, I think those conversations are interesting to have. And ultimately, I think that uh, the more uh, information that investors have and the, the more informed their decision is, uh, the better the outcome. So, yeah. Great. Um, a lot of people thanking us on the, on the stream and um, appreciate everyone tuning into this and coming in in person for, for this recording. Uh, so we appreciate it. We'll have a replay up on MySource Social and MySource Video in the next week or so. And... Uh, yeah, follow Pierre. Thank you, Pierre. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you.
Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Pierre Rochard with Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein. How's it going, man? It's going well. It's been a while. Yeah, we've got to catch up. And also, the, the summer has just flown by. I've been traveling t- way too much. I need to... Uh... Yeah, we blink and it's September now. So what have you been up to? Um, destroying the Cato Institute. Jim Harper, uh, who's former Cato, um, was not pleased with uh, my talk um and later uh, the big one though was then the interesting one was uh, the discussions with george selgin um of cato's center for monetary and financial Art- alternatives um and he had recently done a debate with Safedine at the the soho forum which i believe you were at um in person um which was a fantastic debate um if you like uh really bad arguments from one side and the other person having to you know just deal with answering those instead of taking on interesting arguments um Saifedean wiped the floor with uh, Selgin which was actually really unfortunate because n- not only do I think that Selgin should be someone who is completely on our side and he'll say that he supports Bitcoin um and all that but um you know he should he should be in the trenches with us. I think based on his um, economic research over all these years. But the worst part is the fact that even as someone who disagrees with us on the maximalism, he's not even bringing the heat. Yeah, it's interesting because like I think that uh, part of his concern is that there's not going to be any fractional reserve banking going on <laughs> at that point, right? Like that's that's the crux of the. Uh, problem he has with bitcoin and i kind of agree with him on that so i guess you know we're in agreement with george Selvin. yes well i mean i remember th- this was one of the the great things you wrote about um you know years ago this is you know 2013 how bitcoin puts an end to the austrian banking debates uh, because we don't need to worry about it anymore. We have we have a free banking system in the sense of a completely privatized money um, that anyone can consensually, uh, you know, that network they can consensually join. Um, but it's also one that has full reserves uh, by protocol, and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and so there's no need to have any of those debates anymore. We should just rally around the free market money and take it to its ultimate victory. Yeah, no fiduciary media. It's funny, people like, or you know when Mt. Gox is going down, they had um, like Gox coins. Oh, yeah, so yeah. So you could trade your your share of the Bitcoin that were there. Um, and people were like, oh, look, this is basically fractional reserve banking. It's like, well, yeah, if, if those were trading at par with Bitcoin, but they're trading at a deep discount. So uh, it's not... Like it, it's not a, it's like two freely floating different currencies, uh, one issued by Mt. Gox and one that's Bitcoin. Uh, and I think that people realized that after Mt. Gox, but I haven't, I, I remember people were debating fractional reserve banking and Bitcoin um, back in 2013, but after Mt. Gox collapsed, then there wasn't really any debate about it. But I wonder if, if people gain more trust in Bitcoin financial institutions that eventually they'll be able to do some kind of fractional reserve thing. Honestly, like, I think the way they do this is with their stable coins, first of all, and then with altcoins, uh, Mm -hmm. where, like, nobody cares about 
an altcoin's blockchain even existing and it'll trade on exchange. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, any within Bitcoin itself, an exchange could be doing that. But uh, at the same time, we've never had a banking system that is so sort of inherently transparent or that people can have uh, demand for transparency because it's actually very difficult. I mean, if, if we actually wanted to audit the Fed, I imagine that that's actually like a rather difficult process. Um, whereas with a Bitcoin institution, um, you know, we can develop cryptographic proofs that just show, yeah, we have the keys. You know, there's, you know, there, there are some proof of reserve uh, protocols um, currently. It, it reduces privacy, uh, but at the same time, you know, privacy at, at the cost of, like, you know, costing privacy at the at, at, with the benefit of knowing that your money is exactly what you think uh, might be well worth it to people. There's the, I, I forget who it was. It was the AJ Towns who produced the, you know, the one where you, um, create a transaction that has all of the outputs, but then you add a fake output such that the entire transaction is invalid and cannot be spent. Not sure about that. Um, in any case, you know, these are things that can exist. And so any anyone who is um, deciding that they don't want to be fully self-sovereign themselves and they're, you know, uh, handing over some various degrees of sovereignty to another institution can come at it with these kinds of demands. And because the barrier is so low to just start up a Bitcoin institution, uh, just have a full node, um, uh, there's going to be plenty of competition. You know, as Safedine puts it, you know, we're going to have, you know, thousands of central banks. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I, I so I, I take a more moderate view than Safedine. Like, I actually think that uh, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of central banks, essentially. And uh, part of that is that... Seven billion central banks. Well, yeah. I mean, if we want to take, like, conceivably, yes. Um, and then it's just a matter of what are the technologies that are going to come up, you know, as, as we continue to push the limits on scaling for Bitcoin. Like, there might be stuff, whether it's fiber optic internet, which I think is kind of like, the brute force approach to scaling Bitcoin um, or actual, you know, like mini sketch or whatever they were doing with uh, to, to reduce the bandwidth usage by a dramatic percentage or uh, what uh, James, James O'Bearn came out with. Do I have the right? No, Will O'Bearn. No, James. I always confuse the two. Mm -hmm. James with uh, his Bitcoin core optimization. Uh, that apparently is going to dramatically improve performance there um, just by changing like one data structure in Bitcoin. So like yeah. we don't know what's going to come up with uh, with scaling. And that's where like versus like safety and like thinks that, you know, we have like four transactions per second. And so then here's how many central banks that, that would reasonably support. Like I think that it's going to be way more than that. Yeah, Saferdeen takes up a position that I very much respect and that I've also sort of um, pushed over the year, which is the, the Dayenu um, approach to uh, Bitcoin, um, which uh, in, in, uh, on Passover, Jews have a, a song called Dayenu, and it's, uh, um, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the exact phrasing, but it, it would have been enough. That's what it was. So it's like, you know, it's talking about, oh, you know, God, God led us out of Egypt. That would have been enough. 
God did this for us, that would have been enough, et cetera, et cetera. And Saifedean sort of takes the position of like, what we have is enough at the very worst case that Bitcoin literally does not get better at all. We're going to scale this thing and it's going to work. You're taking the more uh, liberal approach, which is, you know, we actually do see technological development. I think there's great reason to believe that there will be more, but it would have been enough um, to just leave Bitcoin as it was. It, it would have, but I feel like it wouldn't have been as good. Ultimately, we do want it to be more decentralized, not just decentralized enough, right? Um, and have like a greater margin of safety, essentially, between the negative trade-offs that we could encounter um, and the actual like utility that the system provides to people. Right. Well, I mean, this is that, that's assuming that it, that position basically assumes um, for the sake of argument that there is not going to be um, certain technological developments. If you do believe that there's room for technological developments, then clearly, yes, that isn't enough because you should be taking advantage of technological developments to make the system even better than it, it was. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, I'm very excited about uh, how, how things are coming along in that regard with with scaling because it looks like right now it's just going to be soft forks for the foreseeable future um and mm -hmm. so just from a governor's perspective i think obviously people like you know so, some people view soft forks as possibly being malicious but i think that we know that these in the pipeline are not malicious the most bizarre criticism i've seen so far is with regards to um increasing privacy and decreasing auditability of the money supply like Tancred does not do that um, and uh, Schnorr signatures like don't do that so you'll still see the public you know number of satoshis that are attached to an output are they going to get confused with confidential transactions yeah I think so I think that that's they, they think there's going to be like question marks you know in the block explorer uh, around the numbers. This is not going to be the case. Right. And so they're, they're mistaking, they're getting like the confidential transactions model confused with the sort of ring signature model where, yes, I mean, there's going to be question marks in terms of you see a signature. And if you're trying to make sense of that signature without being in the party that produced that signature, you're going to have some question marks about the signature. Um, but that does not create any signatures when it comes to you verifying the blockchain um, such that you have a full understanding of what your money is. Yeah, and there's an interesting, um, I, th I don't remember if it was Mike Schmidt, I think it was at uh, BitBlockBoom in his speech, he talked about how, as a, and I've, we've heard, we've had guests on Noted say this before as well, of the less data you put on the blockchain, the less it costs you. So there's an economic incentive to put less data on the blockchain. Like, one of the consequences of that is increasing your privacy. The less data you put on the blockchain, the more privacy you have. Um, and so I think that there's kind of an economic dynamic there that allows for Bitcoin to add privacy uh, for purely economic reasons. Yes. It's yeah. not even like virtue signaling about uh, helping people in oppressed countries or anything. And uh, or, or yeah, so a a block space market is good for privacy. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's funny because like the alternative is if you shoehorn privacy into a system, 
then you're making it computationally uh, unscalable, right? I think it's a problem with Monero. Um, but like this, this approach, I think longer term, much better, even though shorter term, it doesn't give you the uh, privacy today that you might want. It depends on how you use it too, right? Like what's crazy to me is people like buying Zcash on an AML KYC exchange, uh, you know, because it's a good privacy coin. It's like, what, what are we talking about here? Well, I think with that, you, you enter the coins into a sort of privacy pool of some sort. Well, so I thought that they did not, like, I, I don't know how Zcash works, but they have, like, shielded and unshielded addresses. And yeah, so I think there's, like, a mechanism by which you, you kind of go into a private mode from where you are. So the, the idea there would be, like, the AML exchanges would see... Um, that you have a certain number of coins, but then you you know enter enter the the room that where there's no cameras and you do whatever you want to do, and then you come out. Right. But then there's the question of okay, well we know how much you had, and now you don't have that much. What did you spend it right. on? Right. Um, and and they just they know that you're involved with this area, right? Which is dubious. So um, I feel like you don't really gain very much. Now, if you're using it, if you are actually buying it somehow on, you know, on the street, you're buying your Zcash anonymously with some $20 bills. Uh, now, that that's more interesting. But um, or like, well, the, the other uh, one that people talk about is BISC, right? But they're like you <laughs> go and you walk into a bank, a, a physical bank, right, and deposit money. Or do you actually have to or can you do it online? But in any case, you leave a paper trail of that yeah. transaction, uh, and it's in the bank records that they could come back and try to nail you on. Yeah, and that hasn't stopped them. You know, they've there's been problems with uh, local Bitcoin uh, users. Yeah. So yeah, I I think uh, the, the privacy stuff is much trickier than well, I think people. You have to have all the opsec around it tight for it to actually ma meaningfully change the outcome of anything um yeah you know th this goes back to um actually I, do you remember that article i wrote it's the the only other article i wrote on the website uh on sni of uh, meditations on cyberpunk right. nightmares and one of the things i was talking about is that you know encryption only kind of works when you have a full network of trusted individuals because like if you're if you're having an encrypted chat with someone but they're a malicious person, they can just be storing it in plain text and broadcasting right. it to the world. And so you need to be able to make good friends as well. And in a sense, OPSEC in this case would be making good friends with bankers. But unfortunately, bankers are legally obligated to be terrible friends and not keep their mouths shut about um, you know what, what you're doing with your financial life. Yeah. Uh, so... I don't think that there's a perfect way of buying uh, anything completely anonymously with fiat because ultimately, like, even if you meet someone in person, uh, it's not anonymous. Um, in fact, your physical presence is perhaps, like, more meaningful than anything digital. Um, yeah. I think one of the saving graces is that when you get into Bitcoin, you start to care more about savings. Um, and you become a uh, lower time preference and uh, have less consumerist behaviors. 
And so there's less desire in general to be making even transactions in general of any kind in the economy. Um, and there's nothing for the panopticon to look at if you're not doing anything. Well, especially when their receipts are covered with BPA. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone, you should be wearing gloves when you go to uh, the store uh, because if you touch the receipts, um, you're letting you're letting plastics and xenoestrogens leach into your body. This is where the financial system is taking us. And then they actually did a uh, study and they found that if you combine the BPA from the receipts with hand sanitizer, it makes things like a thousand times worse. It, it's like a chemical reaction that makes it worse. Yeah, and then if you actually touch physical cash, uh, you're, you're picking up all kinds of like cocaine residue and God knows what else because of all the stuff that Steve Mnuchin and his friends have been doing with the dollar bills. I feel like we've got to go like Walden essentially and um, go out in nature and just live off the land because right now the external environment is just too poisonous. Forget people complain about toxicity, but really the problem is poison in the environment around us. Yes, it's uh, it's bad out there, folks. But even then, so like, you know, like, yeah, the, I mean, the the government knows that I buy meat, which I guess will be a problem when they're starting to like make Soylent the only legal food or trying to force me to eat bugs. Yeah, it's funny. I I saw this, um, this article that was like, uh, environmentalists start eating, uh, you know, fake meat in order to improve global warming. Scientists are skeptical. And so I'm like, huh, that's interesting. The scientists are skeptical about this. So let's, let's see. Usually the scientists are fully on board with what's going on with, you know, climate uh, change and whatnot. Uh, so the article was like, yeah, uh, eating a tofu, you know, a fake burger is good, but just eating vegetables that are not process industrial sludge is actually better so if you could just go ahead and stop eating the shit that they're trying to you know make you eat that looks like meat because the amount of energy mm-hmm. and all the ingredients that go into it and all this uh is just much worse than just yeah eating a, a staff, so, so a couple things um, on that if we're on the topic and, and, <laughs> that was their skepticism though that's what that's what the scientists are skeptical about was uh, the relative impact of, of it on climate change. I was like, well, what about like, let's, let's well, And then the and funny we, thing is uh, uh, John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, uh, there were headlines about how he believed that the fake meat, um, it's good for the environment, but it's bad for human health. Um, but uh, yeah. I, I tend to take a different perspective on the fake meat um this isn't isn't your gut the part of part of the environment though so inherently like you could argue that net it's good for the environment yeah but on net if you continue to exist as a human you're you're harming mother gaia yeah so. well i i, I kind of like the george Weisman approach of like the environment is where humans live so uh, are, we we generally just improve the environment around us. Yes, that's, that's the long arc of history of us 
improving the environment. Uh, the only reason that you know we can even think that the environment is something to worthy of conserving is because we were there to look at it and think that thought. Um, <laughs> because we 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 like the beauty of nature. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, as you know, uh, what's the what's the uh, Werner Herzog line when he was stuck in the jungle while he's making. Um, uh, Fitzcarraldo or Aguirre, I forget which one, but he's, you know, it's just a um, collective, it's just the sounds of collective murder. That's all that the jungle is. Um, but uh, a- a- anyway, like I, I take a different uh, approach to the, to understanding the fake meat because people think that that's, you know, pointed at like the vegan market and stuff. But what I think it, what it really is, is just a way to condition people away from wanting red meat at all uh, by showing, oh, look, you can have alternatives and look how good it is. Um, it's really just a way to scam meat eaters into eating something that's not meat. So if you actually, if you do like meat, you want to taste the meat, then you can have this burger here that's not meat. Um, and then they Otherwise have something you to point to. Otherwise you should eat the bug. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, you know that means that they can make real meat illegal at that point because then they can be like, well, look, like you, you can still eat meat. Okay. It's still accessible to you, but it's just not, uh, it's not beef. Right. Exactly. Well, and this is, this is one of the, the big problems is that, um, people treat this as, uh, the reason that people eat meat is simply because it tastes good. Yeah. It's just this pure, you know, our, we've turned into nutritional nihilists and food is nothing but this hedonistic, you know, pleasure dome in our mouth, you know, just to, to like, and, oh, feel the flavors. And there's nothing about nutrition in it, uh, because if that was the case, then you would understand why meat is, is a very special food and why it's qualitatively different than the alternative meat, which is an oxymoron, but. I find it funny when people call it a fad diet. Well, I mean, it's been a 2.5 million year fad. Um, yeah. Uh, but this does say something about just like the culture in general. I don't even think food is the only, um, you know, example of this, of just um, various uh, parts of our lives that are just gutted of uh, all meaning, such that then they can just like give us, you know, crappy alternatives and uh, further keep us away from you know, the things that actually make life good and nice. And, uh, yeah, no bueno. Yeah. I, I think that there's gotta be, uh, there's gotta be something that, that I, I think that the other part is the fiat food side of things. This is peak fiat, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're never going to reach levels of fiat like this ever again. Uh, is is my read on the situation with Bitcoin. So, uh, but imagine if Satoshi had not created Bitcoin, and that sound money had eluded us for like fifty more years. The state of food at that point, uh, where I, I think that they would just have us an, on an IV drip, right? Like you wouldn't actually eat food anymore. Well, it'd be like in just, Wally. Yeah, we would just be all fat slobs, you know, on it's, on. Uh... Just watching our watching television all day. It'd be like a mix of Wally and Idiocracy, mixed with Ready Player One, because you'd have the, uh, you know, VR sets. 
Yeah, the, the complete dystopia that Satoshi is saving us from. Uh, praise be upon him. <laughs> Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin fixes all of this. <laughs> yeah, you, you can watch any dystopia movie and I can explain to you how Bitcoin would fix everything in it. I mean, Bitcoin, would, a, lot, a lot of uh, television shows and stuff like that don't really make sense in light of Bitcoin. Like, I remember, you know, say what we want about these privacy problems with Bitcoin and all of that. But for instance, I remember Breaking Bad was one of the last TV shows I watched, you know, back back when that was on. And um, I remember he he had this problem of like having to deal with all of this cash and he had it like buried underground and, you know, maintain the coordinates and stuff. And he, there was at one point he was having to roll a barrel of cash around Um all that, like, Bitcoin's transportability just makes it so much easier. And also the portability, yeah. or it's just like, you could have just had 256 numbers, bro. <laughs> yeah, and I also feel like uh, train heist movies, or heist movies in general, are going to have to dramatically change, uh, you know, like uh, Ocean's Eleven type stuff. Yeah, they, they, get, have... they get to the vault, and then at the end, there's one of Nick Zabo's stickers of, this was protected by multisig. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, all right, there's 13 more vaults that we have to break through. <laughs> and the movie goes on for a half day. <laughs> and by that, I mean 12 hours. You know, like a 12-hour movie would be really... Uh, that's where Netflix is going to be selling their binge movies is half-day multi-sig heist movies. Yeah, uh, Netflix is going to be really pushing Bitcoin just so they can uh, create this kind of long-form content. You know, Tone made a really good point at BitBlockBoom that Netflix could sell their services anywhere in the world for Bitcoin because they're just delivering a digital good. So, like, why don't they do that? They should definitely get on that and... So, sorry, that way they don't have again? to. If they don't want to deal with the payment system in some third world country or whatever, uh, they could just offer Netflix there, uh, and you would pay with Bitcoin. And the reason you could do that very easily is because it's just a digital good. You know, it's not like uh, yeah. The problem, world. the problem, I assume, is with licensing. Although they own their own content, so with their own content, I don't see why they shouldn't do do that. But it, yeah. you know, they're they're having problems. You know, they I know they're taking friends off Netflix or The Office or both of them or whatever, and those ma those make up like an extremely large portion of the entire traffic through that website. Um, so they are heavily reliant on licensed licensed content. Um, so and and um, it is going to I think take a bit longer for Bitcoin to fix uh, fiat culture. Um, that has been rotted by intellectual property. Um, well, that, but also the, that competition is going to be in other streaming services, like Disney is launching its own streaming mm -hmm. service. Like eventually the competition between them is going to get them to, uh, for one of them to start accepting uh, Bitcoin and uh, operating like in the same way that um, oh, what's what Uber, you know, was like mm -hmm. half illegal in places like, they could do that where they beam it down with a satellite and you pay with uh, lightning. Yeah, it's interesting if that if that's like the way it goes. Uh, you know, we end up back where movies were back in the, like the twenties and thirties, where studios owned uh, the movie theaters, 
And so it was very, it was, a, it was like a vertical approach to movie distribution where a studio would cultivate the talent and the writers and the actors and everything. They'd produce the movies and they'd put them in the theaters that they owned. Um, and likewise, you know, various um, competitive uh, studios could be creating their own sort of online sil silos where you can go to uh, you, if you expect a certain level of, of quality um, and a certain type of content. Um, although I really do hope that more people adopt more sort of creative commons type uh, methods of, of licensing so that we you know don't have to live in this rot where all of culture is just uh, shit tier advertising. Well, okay, but can you say that, for example, um, with iTunes, you were able to buy songs, right? And then Spotify came along and you just pay a monthly subscription service. Mm -hmm. And so then you don't have to worry about it. And I think Spotify, like, Spotify definitely got me uh, torrenting a lot less music. In fact, not torrenting any at all. Uh -huh. uh, and so I feel like having a premium streaming website where you do charge, you know, some nominal amount, like $12 a month or whatever it is. Uh, even if you had no intellectual property protections on it, you would still just pay for it and use it. I think the, the, the you would, and at the margin, I mean, I use streaming, streaming music services, uh, but I do notice that music goes missing. You know, I, I can't I can't depend on Spotify or Google um, or Apple to maintain proper metadata and files for all of the music that I actually want. And I know that because it's literally been a problem for me. Um, so having having these uh, other networks, um, if they, if they're able to proliferate more in a in a legal fashion would be good because it could, you know, protect against. Uh, so it sounds like you want an immutable ledger of of these things, right? So this sounds I want my like own. I want my own immutable ledger uh, yeah. on my own on my own machine. No, but like, so this brings up a good point that if you subscribe to Disney, um, I feel like you should be able to run a Disney full node that downloads the entire current magazine that they have, their current collection, and. If something gets deleted in the future, that can't be retroactive. So, uh, or you would at least know about it, right? Uh, yeah, at least know about it. Ideally, they can't delete it from your device. Um, yeah. And so then, if you want to get new episodes, then you got to keep your subscription. Uh, but if you cut your subscription, then you still have everything uh, locally. So, like, I think that would be interesting. Though they would never go along with that, right? Like they. They don't care about. No, they want full coverage. control. I mean, they. Yeah. I mean, Disney. Disney, especially. The reason that we have such onerous uh, IP laws is partly because of you know Mickey Mouse and them wanting to protect their own um, interests. And now everyone is is consuming content. You know, everything's through Marvel or Star Wars or some other you know Disney owned um, company, such that all of your cultural references are owned and operated by. Disney as a corporation, um, in which case you can't think outside their box. And so they get to have full control uh, of your mind uh, in that sense. Um, so, of course, they would not want that. It sounds that. like a, an eclipse attack. It is. That is okay. exactly what it is. 
Uh, and this is why I think like, you know, public domain works are good because, you know, no one can rightfully sort of own Shakespeare. Uh, well, I mean, no one can rightfully own any idea, but, um, you know, no one, no one can get away with trying to claim ownership of Shakespeare, only a specific implementation of Shakespeare. Um, right. And likewise with, you know, Greek mythology or whatever else is in, you know, Project Gutenberg. Um, but uh, additionally, like, uh, you know, we, we've seen instances where, you know, Netflix does things like this. So I remember there was there was a hoopla because um, they they retroactively edited uh, some Bill Nye, the science guy episodes uh, because the content no longer uh, matched the uh, scientific dogma that he was pronouncing on uh his his latest netflix special and people noticed that and so they went back and fixed it um and on the one hand you know like there if if it was a uh, genuine uh scientific progress where we knew something more about the world then you know perhaps there's something to be said about having the updated version that better matches reality to teach new viewers at the same time there is something kind of uh, scary about the memory holding effect where Big Brother not only uh, gets rid of that idea for you not to see, but also the ability to even know that that had been an idea in the first place, which prohibits you from exploring the historical, um, you know, progression of an idea, which is horrifying. Yeah, because in a way, it's like if you if you created a book and then you, you made predictions in that book and then you went back and updated the book to actually so that your predictions are fulfilled right yeah um, and so you like correct the predictions that you made we were um, always at war with eurasia yeah and then someone's like oh wow michael goldstein really has a lot of foresight here uh he got a lot of predictions right in this book it's like uh that doesn't really work that way and and then people are going to think, uh, you know, oh, wow, Bill Nye's a genius. Like, he's never gotten anything wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so just just seeing how these are working out, I, I can't wait to see how Bitcoin will fix them. <laughs> the other thing that I was thinking about was that while all of these uh, other media are proprietary and intellectually, what, what do you say, property, property-fied, privatized, mm-hmm. intellectually privatized, um, Monopolized. The, open, the, the, the free and open source software movement is like a complete uh, gem in this ocean of trash. Um, and to me, it's like, it's fascinating that there's a profession that was like, you know what, uh, a good number of us are going to contribute to open source projects, uh, which is like not something you see among like marketing people or accountants, you mm-hmm. know, like, oh, we're going to do, you know, for the public good or whatever to scratch my own itch. I'm going to do some accounting. Yeah, um, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I, 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 and I think it's it's part of why like computers are so reliable. Uh, otherwise, if we had just had Microsoft, they would not have cared at all. Yeah, I mean, they would have forced me to do an update while we're recording, <laughs> and then it would last for the next three days. And it really this, was it, like the DMV it, when it, they were like dominating. That was one of my favorite things about uh, when I first you know, installed Ubuntu back in, you know, sometime in high school was the concept of a package manager and how all of the software was getting updated in one place 
that I controlled as opposed to random Windows updates constantly popping up. That was just like a magical moment for me. There's some sanity in a computer. And, and that you don't have to go to a website to install something. You don't download setup.exe. Instead, you go to the package manager, you search for it, and then you install it. Right, like, exactly. It's a very like sane process, um, which it, for some reason, it's lacking on both Mac OS and on Windows. Now, they are changing it where like they have their app store, you know, mm-hmm. and you can do things through there. But um, I, I think that the, the open source package management process, now, there are problems with it too, right? And notably for language package management systems oh, like yes. Python's. Uh, pip and uh, but even worse, NPM, NPM is is yeah. absolute garbage. Yeah, NPM's as bad as Ethereum. I I have to say, in terms of, I guess it's just because of the JavaScript, right? Like, uh, probably, you know, yeah. Yeah, it pollutes the mind. Um, no, but pip is pretty bad too, from the perspective of like, how do you police the namespace mm-hmm. so that people don't. Uh, like, I've had situations where I install a package and it's not at all what I wanted to install, but it had the same name, um, and that's kind of ridiculous. Although that's that's going to always be an issue with everything. Um, to have to have a global namespace, I think you could curate better. I think that they should have something that's semi-permissioned. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fair. If you if you if you accept that it must be a permission centralized thing, uh, which I mean, it kind of inherently is, um, then yes, absolutely, they should. Yeah, and I I would want it to be stricter than a DNS, like than uh, existing DNS rules in terms of squatting and whatnot. Like it really should be like more like an app store essentially in terms of how, uh, and even the app stores that have been criticized for not looking at things going into it as closely as there would be interesting questions um, around say you know i do pip install crypto that puts that puts it on uh the the pip maintainers to determine what is the correct crypto which seems like a pretty sort of risky thing i wouldn't want to be in charge of uh deciding that at least yeah i mean you could also you could just have it not not allowed yeah and then you have to be like, this is Stanford crypto. You have to specify. Yeah, no, you should have to specify that, I think. But also, aren't there like a, like Libsodium, I think is people recommend that as the crypto library. So like there are, I think, best practice like crypto libraries that you could default to. Um, right. I'm just saying like, because if you have the global namespace and you are taking a uh, privileged position of curating that, that does put it an onus on you to choose very carefully uh, who who you're naming uh, these very fundamental pieces. Yeah, I, I think that you, w- you wouldn't want any mm-hmm. generic names uh, being used. Uh, you would want them to all have a high degree of specificity so that no one accidentally yeah. installs the wrong software. It's like, that's not currently how, how it works. Uh, and none of, the, none of the package managers, I think, are th- that strict about it. This is this is going back, but I do have to say, you know, a, another beauty of the open source community is that when something like Mac OS does not provide a great package manager, um, 
people decide to start uh, creating homebrew. There's a Windows equivalent uh, to homebrew as well. So it's it's kind of, it's bizarre that I think Apple should have acquired homebrew and poured hundreds of millions of dollars into it. Yeah, into perfecting it. and Yeah, and making sure that it was clean. And also just have, even have people contribute to the underlying projects. Like just find out what the most popular homebrew, you know, projects are that people install the most and then just have Apple engineers start contributing to those. Yeah. Um, just in terms of making big Apple the number one developer like experience. Uh, other uh, pieces of software as well. I know like, you know, stuff like iTerm2 is a popular terminal program. They should just replace terminal. Yeah, they should do stuff like that. Just like if it's good enough, just replace it. Or if it's good enough that people are going to be wanting to use a Mac developer environment because they have tools like that, you should be pouring money into these fundamental pieces because they are absolutely helping your business. Yeah. Yeah, and then same thing with like, um, the, the, we were trying to get the live streaming working, like having OBS be an actual like part of the operating system. And so then they could polish up because they, they try to specialize in like great UX, you know, easy stuff. Mm-hmm. And they, I, I think they did create a podcasting app uh, and they've got iMovie and GarageBand. Uh, they mm-hmm. should do a live streaming version uh, for that. Right. I'm actually surprised they haven't, especially since they, you know, they created podcasts. Yeah. Um, and they're the, they're the sort of one of the key players in that entire space. And, and live streams often end up as podcasts, you know. Yes. Where are you at, Tim? It, he, he's he's blowing it because the other thing is they, they should be getting into Lightning big time as well. Yeah, and Apple Pay. Apple Pay, uh, selling digital services around the world. I mean, uh, Apple Pay, by the way, is fantastic because uh, I don't even have to take out cards. Like the less physical uh, things that aren't like that I have to touch. Um, the only thing I wish they had receipts in Apple Pay. I don't understand that. Tim could be protecting us from the BPA. Yeah. Um, that that should be seen. We should be pushing that uh, at Apple as a huge environmental factor. Like how much plastic paper is printed every year just for receipts, and they should just have it go into your phone. Um, they could have some sort of standardized receipt system. And so you could also access all of your receipts through your wallet. You know, this does remind me of something uh, with Lightning. You, you have this concept of like creating an invoice and you can put a memo in it. Um, but uh, you can't really like have an itemized list of items like you would have on a receipt. Now, they do allow you to, instead of putting a text memo, you can actually put a hash of the memo and then you have an external object that is, you know, what is being hashed. And so then, mm-hmm. then in that thing, you would, in that blob, uh, I think that there should be a receipt standard uh, that becomes developed receipt slash invoice to itemize things and then provide the total and Satoshis and whatnot. Um, that way, you don't have to. You could have that automatically go into your accounting software, and you don't have to deal with a physical receipt and having to type in, you know, how much it was for, and then take a picture of it and you upload it to some third-party uh, QuickBooks. Yeah. Now, what I am excited about is this new Mac Pro. Did Did they announce a new one? 
Yeah, it's just going to be too expensive, though, so I'm just going to have to wait. I've been very, very out of the loop on new computers. I'm trying to run this thing into the ground. That's the way to do it. Um, it's crazy how long these computers will last. I think my laptop's like 10 years old now. Yeah, a, a really, I mean, I, I view this MacBook as like one of the great technological outputs of Western civilization. Yeah. Um, just of kind of how powerful and portable it is. And uh, the fact that it's it's single-handedly the greatest investment in my life. Uh, I would I would even perhaps put it uh, above, you know, some, some Bitcoin so far uh, by virtue of creating the ability to even be engaging with that world at the level uh, that I've been able to. Um, hopefully it'll be eclipsed one day with, with pure mooning. Um, but uh, outside of that, um, just the amount of productivity that I've been able to get out of this thing for quite an affordable price when amortized over all of those days, it, it's, it's really incredible. Yeah. So basically you're just saying that you've, you've made some great tweets on your laptop. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> That's great. I'm I'm happy that uh that they're inspiring you. I got I got so many likes through this what I was able to type into this yeah. laptop. No, they, they they are good. Uh now I think that the the amount of dopamine that has just rushed through my head thanks to this laptop. There's a serious problem though, because the new version is horrible. Um and touch bar is terrible. Uh so I'm very concerned about that. Yeah, I got one of the, the last before that came out. So I think that they've got to bring back the old version and maybe like upgrade the internals, but keep the externals the same. Uh, that would be ideal. Yeah. I, I also noticed they, they don't do, you know, USB uh, anymore. They, they hardly have any ports as it is. And so for someone like me, I like to use my laptop at my desk as well. I plug a bunch of stuff into it. Um, and they're just making that more and more cumbersome. Um, so I kind of, I, I, I hope that I don't have to replace this thing because I'd have to buy like a bunch of dongles to plug in and yeah. plug tons of other things in. Or you get a nice Linux laptop. Yes, I mean, that would, that would be the alternative. I'd probably end up doing that. Yeah, see, that's that's where I, I, I do wish that they came out with, and they, they could actually, they could come out with a MacBook Pro that, is a little heavier and a little thicker that has like more horsepower and i would totally go for that yeah like a macbook dev you know kind of developer oriented stuff where you're going to need computer interfaces and it has a solid graphics card and whatnot. Yeah. yeah yeah i'd pay good money for that as long as there's no touch bar one of those m2 i don't know if you've seen these uh hard drives but there's a new connector so there's like sata 2 sata 3 now there's m2 that is connected directly to your motherboard that apparently is very good but they should put that in in the next generation of instead of being ceo of coinbase i kind of want to be ceo of apple yeah i mean it sounds like i need to uh stop messing with Cato and start messing with tim cook yeah i think you you should be able to meme tim cook into creating a macbook pro dev yeah why is there not a secure crypto element um, doing Bitcoin stuff in my phone. Why does your phone not have Tor on it by default? Why does my phone not have the ability to be a full node? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Like, you know, I, there's there's people like, uh, isn't it Jack Dorsey who, um, he basically only has a, a phone. I don't think he has like a computer. Right, yeah. Well, there's also people who don't have a phone at all 
and they see it as like a status symbol of like, oh, I'm I'm so important that I actually don't need a phone. If people need to reach me, they, there's other people they can contact. Yeah, although I don't know, like the idea, if I could have a full note on my phone, I don't know, that seems like it would be amazing. And they, you could use NFC and stuff like that to work with hardware wallets. You could do so many interesting things. Um, if only Apple had the, the will uh, to do great things again. If they had the will to think different. Yeah, I, I want them to go in the opposite direction, though. Because I essentially want them to create an iPhone that is not a phone, uh, that is a hardware wallet, uh, and that is like... Um, it's a secure device that does not connect to networks at all. You know, this gives me an, an idea who we need to reach out to. Forget Apple. We need to get to Johnny Ives. He's not at Apple anymore. Right. He could be working on hardware wallets. If only he knew what the future was. We need to put him together with Rodolfo. Yes. Johnny, I know you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> I know Noted is your favorite podcast. Um, go talk to Rodolfo. Let's... Uh, Let's create a beautiful, beautiful hardware wallet. That would really be uh, something else now, because you could have completely different design constraints than with the iPhone, um, and so even the like form factor. I would really, I, I would want it to still look like an inconspicuous USB stick. I still <laughs> think that like that's the right approach versus trying to create something that's a little flashy. Yeah, well, I like the you know the cold card is effectively a calculator. Yeah. That's great. Um, the 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 hardware wallet could have something kind of like a uh, like the the iPod Classic. It would be really cool for someone to create, a, take the TI eighty nine or TI eighty three or whatever, strip the innards, um, put in like an actual computer inside of it, and have a TI emulator running. So when you turn it on, it just looks like a TI. But if you do the right combination of you know things, then you actually have access to this full computer that has a secure element and has a hardware wallet as well. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fantastic. But otherwise, it looks like just a general graphing calculator that everyone used in high school. Yeah, uh, and in the kids instead of playing, man, I can't even remember the names of some of those games I used to play on the the TI. There was Gang Wars. I never. I, I knew about that one. I don't think I ever played it. There was one where you were a drug dealer. <laughs> that, that'll teach the kids. That's actually probably a better education for the kids than what they're learning in school. Yeah, so. you, you learned about supply That's and demand. Business, yeah. Business, prices. I mean, uh, what was it? It was Freakonomics or one of those other like pop economics books. They had a whole thing about like the crack crack uh not not the dealers necessarily but the people kind of running crack are like extremely like high-powered mba types right like they they're very smart people about how business operates um and you i i bet they were playing drug wars gang wars (laughs) yeah they're gonna be able to do so much more uh with my new calculator yeah kids are kids are gonna be doing that um you know, in class, instead of instead of uh, paying attention in class, they're going to be overthrowing the legacy financial system. Now, I think that part of the problem is that they don't have any money, so uh, they they can't really overthrow much. Yeah, but think about that. Just like screw you, teach. I'm gonna ruin your pension payment. 
That's uh, that's really low time preference thinking on the front. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, on that note, uh, we should sign off. I've uh, got to get going, but um, yeah, what do we have coming up? So I'm going to be going to um, Riga for Baltic Honey Badger, and then going to Transylvania for a conference there, where we're going to visit a salt mine. This is like a vampire conference or what? Yeah, it's a vampire conference. Um, and I think uh, there's going to be um, like a lot of European Bitcoiners there. Oh, cool, cool. I haven't met, yeah. But it's going to be a blockchain conference. So, so yeah, it's so a vampire conference. Yeah, I'm going to have to deal with blockchainers. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I've dealt with them before. I have techniques. Now, if you really want to deal with them, you bring a Bitcoin sign guy with you. Yes. Because he knows how to take care of others. Yes. He knows how to work the out group. You know, I'll, I'll talk about the Bitcoin sign guy and I, uh, after the BitBlock boom, as we were driving back to Austin, um, we stopped in Waco and visited the Branch Davidian compound um, because it's very important to list, uh, you know visit uh, important... United States landmarks, historical landmarks. Um, and that is a very strange place. Um, um, I, I started pitching them on Bitcoin. Good, good. Yeah. It's, well, they have their cult. I have mine. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's, to uh, each his own cult. Yeah. All right. See you next week. All right. Have a good one. Bye. I was wondering, when does standing up for the right thing take precedence over avoiding conflict? This is something that leaders have to deal with all the time. So clearly out of the gate, things that are immoral, unethical, or illegal, if you participate, you're guilty. That's the way it is. Now, things that are a matter of opinion, that's where you might have to play the long game. Like maybe you don't want to do something a certain way. And if you, but if you think, oh, well, uh, I think the jujitsu class warm-ups should be doing these exercises. Yeah. And, and Echo thinks it should be those exercises. So Echo, these things, we should do it this way. No, we should do it this way. You dig in, I dig in. Now we, we end up saying, well, I'm not gonna teach the class. You know, you end up in these situations. Well, what's the big deal? What's, you know, what, what would I rather do? I'd rather play the long game. Mm-hmm. I'd rather say, hey man, can you explain why you do those exercises? Oh, here's another exercise cool one that I learned. Isn't this good for this technique? Oh, you know how you like when I do this move? This actually helps me do it even though it's just a warm-up move. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. We build a little relationship. You get to understand me. I get to understand you. Boom. All of a sudden you say, hey, I'm going to incorporate that into our warm-ups. We're going to warm up here. Boom. Yeah. Like that. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that the, that's the right thing, right? Because in, in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, these students need to know this escape is the right thing to do. So I do that. So you have to weigh it out. Yeah. What am I doing to my relationship in this situation if I go along with this? Like if you ask me to do nine things that are pretty menial and you're my boss and I say, yep, cool, got it, boss, no problem. Mm-hmm. And you ask me to do something else that's menial. Yep, cool, got it, boss, no problem. Then you ask me to do something else menial. Cool, got it, boss, no problem. Then you ask me to do something that's downright stupid and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I go, hey, boss, I need to talk to you about this. I'm not sure. Can you explain to me why we're doing it this way? Because there's a possibility that someone could really get hurt and you go, oh. Well, you've done, you're, in your mind, you're thinking you've done these 10 things for me. You've done nine things for me. You've done seven things for me. You did them well. You didn't question me. And now all of a sudden you have a question. You must have a legitimate question. Yeah. That's what we're hoping for. That's why we're trying to build relationships now.
All that being said, yes, we're playing the long game. There are times, and this is a really sketchy area to enter into, there are times where something that is happening is immoral, unethical, or illegal, and you might actually have to kind of go along with it. I tried to think of a good example of that, and I thought of one. Oscar Schindler from Schindler's List. What did this guy do, right? This guy was a Nazi. He was a Nazi. They were exterminating Jews. And instead of him standing up and saying, this is wrong to exterminate Jews, I protest, how long would he have lived if he had done that? 30 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you oh, you don't think Jews should die? Cool, we're killing you. That was that. Mm-hmm. How many people did he save? Zero. Mm-hmm. In fact, he, he cost, he went negative one. Yeah, negative. What did he do? He played the game. He, he befriended the Nazi leadership. He bought them gifts. He bribed them. He bought them gifts. He built relationships with them. He ended up being able to move his factory and all this other stuff to save a bunch of Jewish people. And... He, even though he knew, like he would, he would see them executing people. He would see them executing Jews. And he knew it was wrong. He thought it was wrong. He felt it was wrong. And if he would have stood up and said, hey, what you're doing is wrong, then he wouldn't have been able to save anyone. He would have been killed himself. So even in that situation, it's, it's not a guarantee that you, you, need to stand up to do the ethical thing because perhaps there's a chance you can do the more ethical thing by playing the game, building relationships. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe if that war went on, maybe he would have said, oh, you know what? He Maybe he would have risen to a position where he, you know, maybe if the Germans would have won and he could have said, hey, you know what? The Jewish people are making good workers here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to use them or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe he built up a whole new, you never know. Mm-hmm. But when you get rid of your influence, when you lose your influence because you stand up, it might not be the best move. Yeah. And the thing that you have to weigh for this, what you have to weigh with this is you are participating. And actually, you know, they say Oscar Schindler felt completely guilty because he did participate and he was a part of of what was happening. You know, he did his best to stop as much as he could, but he wished he would have stopped more. And, yeah. you know, at some point, maybe you see a little six-year-old girl getting shot and you think, you know what? I should screw it. I should stand in front of that bullet and take that bullet for that little girl. You know, yeah. that's the kind of guilt that he felt. So there are times where you really have to weigh this out. And also I'll tell you, I mean, even in things that aren't this big ethical dilemma, head on conflict is generally not the best way to solve problems. Most of the time, it's much smarter to maneuver and it's much smarter to flank and it's much smarter to come from another angle and it's much smarter to build allegiance and alliance with people so you can have influence over them so you can move them in the right direction. Yeah, so almost like, well, actually straight up, where doing the right thing and avoiding conflict is kind of like they're not that like opposite, you know? Where doing the avoiding, you should... And I'm totally just interpreting this, trying to anyway. Avoiding conflict, you should always be essentially trying to avoid comp- conflict. As far as uh, maybe not. Well, let's not but, use always. Yes, yes. But yeah, okay. Generally speaking, we yeah. do a better job 
the, the outcome is better when we avoid conflict. Yeah. Now, of course, anyone listening to this thinks, oh, you take that to the extreme. This is someone that never stands up for anything. Yeah, you yeah, know, and yeah. that's bad. That's and it's only that's also bad from a leadership perspective. If if your team is looking at you and they think, huh, Jocko never sticks up for us. He never gives the boss any pushback. So we yeah. just we're just at the whim of this tyrannical boss, and Jocko's no buffer to it. Yeah. That's what they see. So you can't just be a pushover. But at the same time, if you go to your troops and you say, Hey, listen, guys, here's what's going on. The boss has got a lot of ideas right now. Some of them are good. Some of them not so good. But guess what? what? What I'm doing right now and the reason that we're pushing hard to carry out what he's trying to get us to do is the, to the best of our ability. The reason we're doing that is because I'm actually trying to build some trust with him so that he will listen to me. Right now, he's not really listening to me. Mm-hmm. He knows I don't have much experience, but I'm trying to build relationships so he can listen to me so we can actually do this in what I think is going to be a smarter way. Can you guys help me? build this relationship by kicking ass for the next three projects that we've got so I can build up some clout and come back to him and get the tools or the people or whatever it is that we need. Yeah, yeah, man. <clears throat> so you always have this real finesse sort of way of, of saying stuff like you. <laughs> it's fun where it, I guess... <clears throat> well, you were, my, you were saying, and I think you were wrong, actually. You were saying that... that um, Standing up and doing the right thing is the same thing as avoiding conflict. as avoiding conflict. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't mean, mean it like that. I, I meant that they're not necessarily always opposites. You know, like doing the right thing and avoiding conflict. Got it. Like there, you know, there's just some wishy-washy kind of room in the wiggle room in there a lot of time. And when I say avoiding, you should always be quote unquote avoiding conflict. I meant, of course, not always, but. I meant more like even if I'm going to confront someone or something about like something that's wrong, I still should be while I do that, I should be avoiding like conflict for I sure. Do it in a finesse sort of way yeah. to actually just keep everything, you know, rolling forward, maybe just nudge it in a different direction kind of thing. But I actually now that I'm sort of reading this again, I, I understand what he's asking. You know, it's like, is there a time where it's like, hey, there's going to be conflict? Is there a time where? It's worth the conflict. Yeah. To, and where is that point? You know, and the point thing. that I always give is if if you're telling me, hey, Jocko, go do the mission this way. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing it. Yeah. And you go, OK, fine. You're fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you put someone some yes man in my place. And then that yes man gets everyone killed because it was a stupid, stupid plan. Yeah. Did I really help or should I have said, hey, boss, I'm really going to recommend we do it a different way. Here's some different options. And then finally you say, no, Jocko, you're doing it my way. And guess what? Even then I can go out and mitigate in the field. Yeah, yeah. Even then I can say, you know what? And the classic example of that is in Band of Brothers. Mm-hmm. When Dick Winters, an awesome leader, they send a recon mission across the river one night. Someone dies. They come back. The war is over. It's all but over. And the next night they wanted to do another reconnaissance mission. And Dick Winters is like, sir, I'm not sure that's a great idea. He's like, do it. He goes, okay, roger that. The guys go down. They drink a couple bottles of wine in the bottom of a, they don't do the mission. He mitigated the risk. If he would have stood up and, you know, that's that's a great example of where he avoided conflict. He stayed in the game. He wasn't, he, he said, yes, yes, sir. Got it. We got it. And then he did disobeyed. Sure, he put his he put his rank at risk and probably could have gotten in some trouble, but he knew it was the right thing to do. Yeah, that was like the best sort of way to do it. Yeah, man. And he, again, you um, you're always thinking of like the long game yeah. versus the short game. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like, man, if you can keep that in perspective, these things be, become a little bit more clear. You know, they always do. 